Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Delight to be here today with Professor Kwame Anthony Apia, who's a professor of philosophy and law at New York University. He has previously taught at Princeton, Yale, Cornell, Duke, and Harvard universities and lectured at many other institutions in the US, Germany, Ghana, and South Africa, and, and France. His interests include semantics, political theory, moral theory, intellectual history, race, and identity theory. Professor Appy, I've read most of what you've written, although there's so much I, I still haven't. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, deeply grateful for this time with you. Thank you for making time. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, Rabbi. So to jump right in here, uh, what, are, what are some benefits and drawbacks for using epistemologies developed in Europe and the United States to address issues that are global in nature? Well, so... You know, my, my own view about, about theories, about philosophies, about epistemologies is that the question to ask about them isn't who invented them or where they come from, but whether they're any good. And so the main advantage and disadvantage of using Western epistemologies is that some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, I think we gain a lot by paying attention as well to ideas from other parts of the world. Um, we're on spring break this week, but next Monday I will continue a course I'm teaching in global ethics, and that that course will has has included looking at uh, Muslim materials and and Confucian materials as well as familiar sort of materials out of uh, European liberal traditions. And I think you learn things uh, by looking at things from a variety of angles. The worry I, I mean, the the reason why using ideas that have sort of come out of the West, come out of Europe, come out of North America you know, one problem with them is that in some places they're regarded with suspicion. And maybe that some of those suspicions are justified, but I think the right thing to do if you're suspicious about a way of thinking is to make arguments, to explain what's wrong with it, not to say, not to discuss where it came from, uh, which is basically a kind of uh, cultural uh, argumentum ad hominem. It's just, it's just a way of complaining about something because of the person who's saying it rather than complaining about the content of what's being said. So I, I, I feel I've learned a lot by paying attention in my not very scholarly way to Confucian materials, to thinking about some, uh, some Muslim ideas about moral responsibility and so on. Uh, but my main training comes out of those uh, European traditions, and I feel that they're extremely valuable, which is why I continue to study them. So what's the basic framework for how we think about making moral critiques of other cultures different than our own? You know, whether someone, for example, thinks um, we should not eat animals and critiques a culture that is eating animals, or someone thinks female genital cutting is immoral, but that's not their culture. What are sort of the, the frameworks and, 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 and boundaries? I, I, it's obviously a very large, complex question. Right. How do we begin to think about that? Well, so... Um... 
you know, I've defended the kind of cosmopolitan perspective, the idea that we should think of ourselves as citizens of the world who have much to exchange ideas about, not because we're going to come to agreement, but because mutual understanding is in itself an important and valuable thing. Um, so I would say one of the first things, if you're going to, to be interested in critique of practices elsewhere, is to get them right. And the only way you can get them right is to pay careful attention to what's going on, which means listening to the people who are doing them and trying to make sense of their reasons for doing them and to decide whether you think those reasons are adequate. And if they aren't, uh, then you may conclude that what they're doing is wrong. And then you have to think about what to do about that. Now, the trouble with deciding that somebody somewhere else is wrong is that that doesn't uh, empower you with the capacity to persuade them because uh, probably at least some of the arguments you're going to be able to think of, they've already thought of and rejected. Um, and so I think the only way to proceed uh, is continuing um, provided the practices are the sort of practices that are not so awful that you just need to try and figure out how to get in there and stop them, which is obviously the case when you reach um, you know, ethnic cleansing and things like that. There, I think you, you have to stop the arguments and figure out how to get in there and make a difference if you can stop them. But um, with, with the sorts of, with, with say female genital cutting, um, th that's a very good example because you have to figure out first of all what's going on and the answer is lots of different things are called female genital cutting and some of them are more uh, substantial, uh, 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 cause more substantial harm to women than others. Um, and you have to figure out why people are doing them and then you have to figure, think, is there any way that if we've decided that the practice is, is a bad one, bad, bad for the, the girls and women it's done to, um, is, there, is there a way of uh, productively intervening? And I think the first thing to say is you need to be in dialogue with the culture, not just about its sins. You need to be in respectful dialogue with people in order to have any real ca uh, capacity for influence at all. And that means dialogue. That means you have to listen. And in the course of the listening, one of the things you'll hear, of course, is criticisms of things you're doing. And you have to be open to the possibility that if you as an outsider can correct something somewhere else, see that something wrong with it, uh, they as outsiders to you may have identified correctly something that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Um, so having said all that, there are successful examples, I think, of interventions. Um, in the case of female genital cutting, there's been a very successful campaign in, in um, Senegambia, in, in West Africa, uh, which worked in exactly the way that I said. The organization went in, a long time ago now, and they began by having dialogues about health and human rights. They did not come in saying, we're here to stop you doing this terrible thing. They came in, they built trust, they made arguments, and in the course, of, uh, and introduced people to the, to the fact that they had rights, uh, under international law and under national law and so on, and that certain practices were healthy and unhealthy. And then naturally, in the course of those conversations, at some point in a society where female genital cutting is important, it'll come up and the question arises whether it's okay. And in all of these communities, eventually somebody says, maybe it isn't okay. And then you can help them figure out what to do about that. And it's complicated because in a society where everybody's doing it and where women who are not cut can't get married, you've got to persuade the men, the, uh, the parents of the men, uh, that uh, they will marry women who are not cut. You've got to, in other words, change everybody. You can't change 
people one by one. And, and what they did in this program was to develop a process by which communities made this decision, they made declarations, they then talked to the neighboring villages, the people they got their spouses from, as it were, and tried to persuade them. And then they, they picked a date on which they would come together and um, declare that they were turning against this practice. So it can be done. That was an intervention from the outside, but it was a respectful intervention that began by framing the issue uh, by developing a relationship in which people were talking about health and human rights. In, in, in my book about honor, I talk about similar interventions in, uh, by uh, evangelical um, Christian missionaries and by um, women uh, who were married to uh, European and North American business people on the coast in China, who, who together persuaded the Chinese literati to uh, begin a campaign which led to the end of foot binding in China. And in fact, the, this, this, uh, this successful program in West Africa uh, has to some extent been guided by its understanding of what happened in the Chinese case. So that, that, that's, I'm sorry, that's a rather long answer, but, but I think it's the beginning of how to think about these things. Uh, it, it's to begin with a respectful dialogue, except in the cases where there's a kind of emergency where you have to stop a, a genocide or something. Um, and, and to, that involves listening as well as talking, uh, and which I'm not modeling very well. And, and when, you, when you do that, um, as I said, one of the things that happens is you get criticized too, and you have to be open to that possibility. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. So can, can liberalism, with its emphasis on the individual, be used as a primary framework to address some of the main problems of our times? What are some of the opportunities and, and limits here? So I think of, I mean, that, that's, since uh, we live in a time when words like liberalism get used by people in all sorts of different ways, let me say first a little bit about what I take the sort of broad contours of liberalism to be. Uh, one, one of them is what you, you implied. I think it's, it, it, it involves the notion that um, each individual human being has a bunch of important rights uh, which uh, need to be respected uh, by state, by the, by the government and by society, by other people. I think modern liberalism combines that with a concern to make sure that we guarantee the welfare of, of the worst off, that we don't, um, we don't let anybody fall a certain baseline fall below a certain baseline. That idea, of course, is a very old idea. Lots of religious traditions, including your own, have the idea that we have responsibility for the welfare of the poor. But, um, but uh, in, in the new uh, sort of liberal dispensation, that's thought of not just as a matter of the responsibility of good people, but as a responsibility of good people and the government together to, to raise the baseline. Um, but the, the challenge in taking these, and that idea, by the way, that we have both the government and, and, and ordinary people have responsibilities for uh, the welfare of the poor, uh, is there in, in Muslim traditions, zakat, uh, money for the, for the poor, charity for the poor is one of the five pillars of Islam, and it's there in Confucianism, uh, where people have responsibility uh, for looking after the welfare of poor people in their families and their communities. And in the end, the government has responsibility for guaranteeing the baseline. So th these are not controversial ideas. Well, I suppose, I suppose they are controversial, but they're ideas that can be found in many places. They're good ideas. And I think liberalism, while, it, while there are lots of disputes about exactly what the baseline should be and exactly how you should secure it and so on, uh, the idea that we should do that is, is not controversial within liberalism. The controversies are all about how to do it and what the details should be. On the rights side, we have a bigger challenge. 
in using these ideas globally because many of the world's moral traditions, including, uh, for example, again, Confucianism, um, start more with notions of our responsibilities and our duties than with notions of our rights. That's less of a challenge or less of a difference than you might think because uh, many duties imply rights. If I have a duty to look after my aging family, then they, my aging parents, they have a right that I do so. So sometimes it's just a matter of reframing the language. But there are notions of um, uh, responsibilities, uh, I think, and, and uh, duties, sorry, and rights that don't necessarily uh, assign to anybody in particular in the case of duties. Uh, so, so let me just give the example of, of, of uh, charity for the poor again, what Muslims call zakat. Um, uh, uh, that's a, what, what Kant would have called an imperfect duty. That is to say, uh, you have to give money to some poor people, but there's no particular poor person that you have to give it to. And that means that from the point of view of the potential recipient of charity, they don't have a right that you give it to them. And that means that you've got what you've got here is a is a duty, but no guarantee that it will actually meet the needs of everybody because no because individuals don't have the right um, uh, to ha to to have anybody in particular meet the need. So I think there's a um, the advantage of trying to develop things in the way that the liberal tradition has tried to develop them is to say we should focus on the rights because we need to make sure that everybody has what it takes to secure their interests in a flourishing human life. And that's part of what rights are for. And when we assign rights, we should try to make sure that we, we, we create or imply a specific set of responsibilities, uh, duties to, on somebody uh, to make sure that the rights are secured. So it's, it's one thing to say that everybody has a right to an education, but you have to insist that that means that governments have a duty to make sure that everybody's educated. It's no, no point in having a right to an education if there's nobody who has the responsibility of making it happen. Uh, a child can't guarantee herself the right to an education. It has to be guaranteed somehow. Those parts of the liberal tradition, and especially the, the fundamental rights against governments, rights against uh, torture, against expropriation, against um, being imprisoned without trial, and so on, those rights are not difficult to persuade people in the world that they're a good idea. Most people in the world think it's great if uh, you to, to discover that under under international law um, and therefore under agreements that everybody is, as it were, signed up to, uh, you may not be tortured. You may not have your property taken without uh, due process. You may not be imprisoned without uh, without a trial and so on. Um, you know, those are those are. I don't think that's uh, that's particularly controversial. The interesting question arises uh, when you face societies which put a great deal more uh, emphasis on, as it were, the concerns of the community than on individual rights. And um, for example, the, um, the 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 African Charter of Human Rights, the Banjul Charter, speaks of it's a charter of human and uh, people's rights, and, and that implies that sometimes the government is going to say to someone who's making an individual claim, sorry, it's not in the interests of the group uh, that you, you meet this claim. I think people can exaggerate the, uh, the 
significance of that sort of difference in attitude, because we too uh, think that in circumstances uh, where, where circumstances are severe enough, we will curtail individual rights uh, in order to secure the general welfare. I mean, people in San Francisco right now are being told they can't go out uh, unless they're going to a pharmacy or a food store or going to do necessary uh, emergency work or work in a hospital or something or, or to work in a, in, a, in, a, in a food store or a pharmacy, presumably. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a restriction of individual rights, but I think we all agree, at least I do, uh, that it's perfectly sane and sensible to restrict rights because it's in the interest of everybody, uh, uh, it's in the interest of the community. Uh, uh, so um, I think that the basic framework of concern for rights, individual rights, is enormously important and helpful. I think that it's very important not to simply uh, as it were, declare rights without thinking about the mechanisms for securing them. So rights imply duties. And I think that most of us think that despite the importance of this concern for individual rights, treating each person as an end, as Kant would have said, an end in him or herself, uh, despite that uh, focus, uh, of course, sometimes uh, collective uh, concerns mean that we have to limit individual rights. Um, the most obvious example apart from the sort of thing that's going on in San Francisco right now, would be the, the need for uh, military, compulsory military service in wartime. Uh, you don't normally have a duty, uh, in fact, you normally have a right to refuse to, to take up arms, uh, but in wartime you lose that uh, right because it's necessary for the protection of the community. So, um, so picking up on this point of rights, in a religious framework, or in a, let, let's start with a Jewish framework, we talk about um, people being created in the image of God. And many religious people will understand dignity based upon a godly nature of the human. But as an, uh, uh, with an appreciation for secular philosophy, how do we, what's the moral framework to ground dignity that, that grants such rights? And um, how does that change? You know, I, I don't know if everyone still talks about post-Holocaust as an era. I think of Levinas and the grounding in the face, moving away from metaphysics. But how do you understand in your framework sort of the moral grounding of, of dignity that enables en enables rights. Good. So, I mean, you're correctly insisting on this, uh, and we should remember that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the United Nations Declaration, uh, founds them in the in, in human dignity and talks about dignity in the in the preamble. Um, well, we should begin by acknowledging, I think, uh, that uh, a good deal more than half the species uh, shares the view uh, that we are made in the image of God. And so for at least half the species, that's, as it were, enough. Uh, human, human dignity is grounded in the fact that you and I are children of a loving God. And that's something that Muslims and Christians and Jews and uh, uh, maybe uh, some people in traditions of Asia uh, might concede uh, or might agree to. So let's remember that we have a good starting point in a community of people who are committed to this idea for those other reasons. But if you're not, um, I think there's, there's one uh, fundamental thing to grasp, and it's an argument that I think of as being a version of an argument that I think you can find, in, again, in Kant. Um, it's something like this. 
there are certain so so what first of all let me say what i think sort of again let's say what dignity let's be more precise uh than people sometimes are about what i what i understand dignity to be i understand um, dignity to be to, to say that someone has dignity is to say that there are rights that they have in virtue of certain morally important features that they have and that means dignity is complicated because people have many morally important features i mean one morally important feature of people is that they are capable of and flourish in the context of, of love. Um, I think that's one of the things that grounds the right in the Universal Declaration to marriage. Um, it's because human beings flourish best, uh, or most of us anyway, flourish best in the context of a loving relationship with another human being with whom we form a family. And to deny people that is to deny them something that's essential to normal human flourishing. So that's just one, as well, one part of our dignity derives from the fact that that, that, that kind of relationship is morally important to us. Another kind of our, of, of our dignity depends upon the fact that we are in need of uh, shelter and nourishment. And so people have a right to uh, nutrition and, and to, to, uh, to a home, somewhere to live, uh, which is why it's a scandal that so many people in our society are homeless uh, and so many people are on the edge of um, uh, malnutrition. Um, so, so if you've got that notion, dignity is about identifying the morally important features of people and seeing how you must respond to them in virtue of that, then, and here's the sort of Kantian step, if you recognize these needs for yourself and want, and, and therefore recognize your dignity, recognize that you have these morally important features to which rights are the correct response, then they can't be right because it's you. They have to be right because of the properties you have, and you share those properties with other human beings, so they must be entitled to them too. Uh, you can't claim the rights that flow from your dignity unless you recognize that your dignity is what they flow from. And if your dignity is what they flow from, since other people have dignity too, they must get the rights as well. So that's, I think, the sort of structure of an argument um, all the work is going to be done, of course, by thinking about what the morally important features of human beings are, by thinking about what it is about human life uh, that is essential for human flourishing. That, I think, is, uh, again, something you can have a conversation within religious traditions, between religious traditions, and between religious traditions and the secular about. And we will agree, I think, uh, across those uh, many complex uh, different traditions, and within them, we can agree about some of the founding because we, as I said, starting with, with the right to marriage, um, we can agree that it's just a deep fact about human beings that we flourish best in the context of uh, loving uh, couples and, and the families that they generate. If, if, if we know empirically or suspect that an animal shares a similar uh, uh, concern or, or moral dimension to a human, does that does that weaken the human right? Does that strengthen the animal right? Or is there no relationship? Um, I think it means that just as once you recognize that it's, as it were, the dignity and virtue of which you have the right, if, if an animal has that element of dignity, that, that property that makes the right appropriate, then we should treat it, in, with, we should grant it the right. Uh, that doesn't weaken uh, our claim to the right, it just uh, makes it uh, apply uh, in every case where, where the element of dignity is present. I mean, of course, 
you know, people disagree exactly about what the morally relevant features of animals are. Uh, and it must vary from animal to animal because animals are different from one another in morally important respects. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as, as Jeremy Bentham said in the 19th century, what's important, I think, about the sort of large mammals that people eat, uh, he didn't put it that way, but uh, cows and sheep and so on, uh, is that uh, whether they have a right to life or not, that, that's a complicated question. They certainly have a right not to suffer because because they can experience uh, pleasure and pain, that makes them uh, subjects of moral concern for the same reason that our pleasure and pain make us subjects of moral concern. Now, human pleasures and pains are not like the, um, are not identical with the pleasures and pains of sheep because um, some of the things that distress us involve complex conceptual issues. Uh, the thought of my partner's death, uh, in, you know, which, which will eventually happen, uh, and the thought of uh, his dealing with my death, these are things that sheep and cows can't worry about. And so there are, there are kinds of uh, anxiety and suffering that they can't, be, they can't experience. But they, that they can suffer means that they have moral standing. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. So, um, you know, how do we navigate be between um, our, our responsibility, our loyalty to a unique collective we feel we're a part of, we identify with, and to the sort of broader collective. There's some areas where it um, where it's, it seems quite clear, something seems wrong if you don't take care of your family and you care for a stranger, and yet the opposite extreme feels um, problematic too, um, where, um, where one completely neglects uh, you know, the broader community. And so um, there are these clear areas. Yes, we should care for our own community, our own family. And yes, we should care more globally. But then there's this gray area. When have I fulfilled my loyalty or my responsibility to my unique identity group or my family or my community um, enough that I can move beyond? Um, so this is, I think, the most important and interesting, as it were, theoretical question in ethics. It's about what philosophers would call um, legitimate partiality as opposed to impartiality. One view of morality is we are all children of a loving God. We're all equally children of a loving God. We're all equally endowed with, with the dignity that uh, secular people recognize human beings can recognize people as having. Um, so each of us matters exactly as much as everyone else. And so my responsibilities to uh, each human being are the same as my responsibilities to everyone else. And so as some of the um, early 19th century uh, sort of proto-utilitarians thought, um, I shouldn't take any more concern for my parents than I do for anyone else. If I have a choice between saving two people, I should ask only um, what contribution uh, do these two people make for human welfare, and I should save the one uh, that uh, is going to make the larger contribution. If that one happens not to be my father, who's one of the two, well, so, so be it. Now, that seems to me kind of deeply to misunderstand the nature of the moral situation. The moral situation is that it's not, uh, we do not upend morality when we um, pay attention to our children and our loved ones. We are living in the way that morality requires. Partiality is built into morality. It's part of what it is to be a decent human being, to take more care 
of your own family than you do of your own children than you do of your neighbor's children and so on more care of people in your own community uh, whether that community is defined by politics as a as a political community as a town or a state or a country uh, or whether it's defined um, as some other kind of community the community of people of a shared faith or the members the local members of a particular shared faith who are members of a single synagogue or church or temple or mosque um, i think all of these different uh, forms of identity make legitimate moral claims on us and so the challenge is as you said how to how do we uh, balance these out uh, and the first thing to say is um well um sometimes they don't conflict with one another sometimes sometimes uh, we can do both and and we don't have to make a choice and so it's very important that in many contexts it's clear that what we what we should be doing my, my children are sick it's clear that i should look after my children your children are sick it's clear that you should um it's only when there's a pressure to choose to, to make choices that we we have the challenge um i'd say that um and that's very important i'm sorry it's, it's really important that uh, you know, i am a citizen of new york city new york state and the united states I have responsibilities at all those levels, but usually they cohere. Uh, when I'm picking a senator as a citizen of New York State, I'm trying to pick the senator who will do best, not just for New York, but for the country uh, and for the city. I don't think of those as in conflict usually. Um, so I think it's important that they needn't conflict, but when they do, you're asking, how do we, how do we decide what's more important? That's a very hard question. I think it's really hard to answer abstractly it's it's hard to treat it as a question that you might as it were have an algorithm for so that you give such and such weight to family and such and such weight to township and such and such weight to county and such and so on i don't think that's um that's possible uh so um when you feel a conflict between these things um i'd be inclined to say you should do what you should do when you face uh, moral challenges, which is to, to pay attention to the nature of the two demands and to think uh, whether, uh, and, and to make a judgment. Uh, uh, maybe you should ask help from your rabbi <laughs> in these circumstances. Uh, well, I, mean, I, mean, do, I was we, kind of struck, I mean, I was listening to the primary debates and when we talk about the sick, we're talking about sick Americans. When we talk about poverty, we're talking about poverty in America. Right. And you, you just it doesn't enter the, the the political discourse, at least not on that level, to talk about poverty in Ghana or to talk right. about hunger in Argentina. Um, it right. may in, on some level play into out in American politics. And I wonder, like, is that legitimate because that is American politics or as the wealthiest planet on Earth? Is there a moral imperative for part of that concern to include beyond one's nation? Oh, I think absolutely. Um, I noticed in the dialogue between um, uh, Vice President Biden and, uh, and uh, Senator Sanders uh, in the debate a couple of days ago that Senator Sanders rightly, in my view, said that one of the great achievements of the modern Chinese state had been to take hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And he didn't say this explicitly, but he, but he could have. That's something that we should rejoice in. We, not as being Chinese, but just as human beings, we should rejoice in the fact that that's happened. Um, at a later stage of the discussion, he, he complained effectively about um, uh, 
Vice President uh, uh, Biden's support for various forms of trade liberalization treaties. But of course, those trade liberalization treaties were part of what made it possible for the Chinese to take hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. In other words, some of our policies here, um, which are good for us, uh, can be made in ways that are good for other people as well. And that should count for us in their favor. Uh, we, we, we don't talk about this enough. Uh, I think you're right uh, in our politics. Um, I think one of the great advantages of being a citizen of a modern state is that all of us, look, here's what I think our basic cosmopolitan responsibility is. Our task is to make sure collectively, all of us on the planet, that every human being has the chance of living a dignified human life. That's, that's the main thing that we should, we, we owe, I think, to one another. We, we don't, uh, we don't owe we're not responsible for other people's lives. Everybody's responsible for their own lives. But we are responsible for making a world in which everybody has a shot at a life of dignity. That means that our foreign policy, as much as our domestic policy, has to be shaped by that, though the primary responsibility for the American poor lies with, with you and me and other Americans, and the primary responsibility for the poor in Ghana lies with uh, Ghanaians. But we also have a responsibility to create an international system that makes it possible for the people in Ghana to uh, do things, including their government, to do things that will mean that everybody in Ghana can have a life of uh, dignity. One of the things that's one of the great virtues of living, as I said, in a, in a powerful modern state is that that responsibility that each of us has can in part be discharged for us by our government by having responsible foreign policy for trade policy, economic policy, uh, aid policy, uh, responsible health policy that allows us to participate in the in, in the global eradication of, of malaria and so on, which the CDC, uh, you know, helps with, even though the CDC is an American institution and malaria isn't a big problem in the United States. I think that, um, I, I know why it doesn't come up, uh, because uh, <laughs> people in, in, in elections are, you know, trying to get votes and people don't like being, uh, being uh, reminded of their responsibilities in this domain probably so much. And so the incentives for politicians to raise it are not high. But our politicians and our politics do in fact, not to a sufficient degree perhaps, but they do in fact recognize that this is a responsibility that we Americans share with everybody else on the planet. And because we have more resources on average, um, we probably have a larger share of the responsibility. Fascinating. Um, okay, thank you so much. So just one last question for you. I want to honor your time. And, and I just want to note, Professor Apia, you've been so humble and gracious. I feel um, you, could, uh, you could write a book on each of these questions, and yet you continue to make this, uh, this reasoning accessible and meaningful uh, so humbly so, and graciously. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, how, how has the coronavirus and various government responses corroborated or challenge your theories about ethics, political philosophy, and group identity? And, or, or just do you have, since it's such a huge question again, what, you know, what are your ethical reflections on this unique moment, um, both either abstractly or work for those of us um, relatively confined should be thinking about or acting upon? Um, so one, one thing I feel is that, uh, and this is something I, I try to communicate in, in my teaching about ethics, is that, um, Whatever your moral theories, um, 
doing the right thing depends upon trying to get a clear picture of the situation, trying to get the facts right. Um, that's what I said when we were thinking about um, uh, uh, genital cutting or, or foot binding. We need, to get, we need to get straight about what the facts are. And one of the difficulties that has faced this country in particular in dealing with the epidemic is, is there is a kind of, uh, this is not a point about ethics, this is a point about uh, epistemology and philosophy of science. There's a kind of skepticism about uh, intellectual expertise that has um, unfortunately uh, uh, made our response to this crisis less adequate than it should have been. Uh, too many people are uh, skeptical uh, about what authoritative sources like the Centers for Disease Control uh, uh, say, as it were, just because they are, they are scientific uh, sources of authority. They, they're skeptical. They think that they think that the kind of people who occupy those positions are somehow engaged in some sort of uh, attempt to bamboozle or confuse us. Now, some of that is the result of something that is of ethical significance, which is that um, many of our institutions of government and the media have lost trust recently, basically over the last few decades. And one of the reasons for that is not that people are crazy, but that um, they have proved untrustworthy. Trust is a response to a judgment of the trustworthiness of, of the people you're, trying, you're thinking about trusting. And from time to time, in various ways, we've been let down. There are also institutions that are deliberately trying to mislead us uh, uh, or that are uh, uh, criminally indifferent to, to the facts. Uh, they just say what it suits their agenda to say and so on. So we, we live in a world of mistrust in part because a lot of people have behaved in ways that are, including people in positions of authority, uh, have betrayed, uh, behaved in, in ways that are untrustworthy. I, um, I don't want to sound, I don't want to be partisan, but, and I'm not being partisan, I don't think, when I say that because the presidency has lost so much trust uh, among many of us over the last few years, because the president has been so um, indifferent to the truth and so dishonest so often, has lied so often, which is something that I've, I've complained about. Um, when trust is needed, it's, it's not there because the institutions don't seem trustworthy. Now, I'm not saying the president is by any means the only person who's done this, uh, who, who, who's proved untrustworthy, uh, but in this moment, uh, it's very noticeable that we can't, many of us feel we can't trust the president uh, when we need to have that trust. And that is a morally important issue. But, and again, I think uh, so far as the facts go, one, one of the things that's become clear is that not only is hostility to foreigners and strangers, uh, not only is it in itself a bad thing, but it has, again, diminished our capacity to respond intelligently in a way that will help all of us uh, to the crisis. The decision suddenly to, to, to uh, insist that, uh, to, to, to urge everybody in, uh, every American in Europe to come home uh, without preparing airports uh, to, to receive them in a way that reduces the spread of the virus is a good example. Uh, many of those people would have been safer where they were 
uh, if we hadn't been thinking about this in terms of raising borders and cutting, shutting, shutting people out, uh, we would have had a more intelligent response. So I, I think it, the the response that what's what's been bad in the response is often the result of moral failings, failures of sympathy across borders, um, uh, failures of uh, to pay attention to the appropriate. Uh, authorities, uh, intellectual authorities, uh, the appropriate knowledge sources, and so on. And, and all of that, I think, I hope, uh, as we recover from this, as I'm, as I'm sure we will, and I pray that uh, the losses will be as few as we can conceivably achieve, um, we, we, I think we need to, we'll need to reflect on these, these failures uh, as, we, as we come back from the crisis. We'll need to reflect on the failures of our institutions uh, the failures of our response to reasonable uh, claims to knowledge and the failures of sympathy uh, across borders, which have actually made the problem worse, not better. Yeah. Friends, uh, I, can't, I can't urge you enough to, uh, to pick up Professor Apia's books and to read his ideas. I have uh, read for a number of decades now, and whatever faith community you're a part of or no faith, whatever country you live in, whatever philosophy, uh, you ascribe to. Um, this has been thought-provoking and, um, and broad and in touch with our moment. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Rabbi. It's good to talk to you. Wishing you many blessings and for continued success. And to you.